Now, I guess my question to you, Dr. Emmert, is why wasn't this made public at the time? Because I think most of these universities would be embarrassed if they were publicly called out that they were unwilling to give a four-year scholarship to an athlete. So why did it take a request from Congress for this roll call for this to ever reach the light of day? And I would ask that this list be made part of the public record. Well, I, I, I think that my sense, and I have a lot of questions about transparency of money and about whether or not things are made public, I, I feel for you because in part of me thinks you're captured by those that you're supposed to regulate, but then you're supposed to regulate those that you're captured. By. And I can't tell whether you're in charge or whether you're a minion to them. You know, I, I don't sense that you feel like you have any control of the situation. And if you have no control, if you're merely a monetary pass-through, why should you even exist? Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is Big Amateurism. Dot com. And then I also have a blog that you might want to check out, and that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Today is November 10th, 2021, and we're going to begin a discussion of the NCAA Constitution Committee's proposed draft to replace the existing NCAA Constitution. And I've talked a lot about where that initiative came from, its history, its stated goals. And now, with the benefit of this new work product, we can go through and look at exactly what is going on here. And there are a couple of things that I want to do in this episode. One is to really provide a 30,000-foot overview of what this document accomplishes. I want to go through the cover memo that Bob Gates sent with this proposed draft and look at how Gates has characterized the changes to the Constitution. And then I want to identify what I think the bottom line is here in bullet points. And then I want to go through the first two provisions of this new Constitution. And I just want to say at the outset that we're going to have to look at the old constitution and then the new provisions that correspond to it. Because when you look at the structure of the existing NCAA constitution, it has six articles and this draft largely conforms to that structure. It's a little bit disguised and there's been some conflation and there has been some interesting cutting and pasting. But in terms of the basic format, there really isn't that much difference. So I want to start by bottom lining a few issues here for the purposes of eliminating issues and then focusing on the things that are really important. One is that this new constitution really is only relevant to division one. So you have 1,200 schools in the NCAA, 351 of them, or about 30%, are in Division One, and the remaining 70% are in Divisions Two and Three. And Divisions Two and Three are completely irrelevant to this draft constitution and the goals of the power players in Division One because that's where the money is. And that's ultimately what this is all about, keeping the money flowing, keeping the national office in business, and then making the downstream beneficiaries in Division Two and Division Three happy enough, dependent enough, and compliant enough to not complain about any of these changes that are going on in Division One, And that has been accomplished in large part through maintaining the 
downstream allocations, the budget allocations from March Madness money to Divisions 2 and Divisions 3. And I talked about that in the last episode. So let's just take Division 2 and Division 3 off the table here. So that simplifies the task in some ways. And then I want to also just make an overarching observation that the purpose of these structural changes are to allow the Power Five the flexibility to create their own division without having to go through an association-wide approval process and further separate their interests from the rest of Division One. And that's going to happen. I'm going to talk about that in some detail when we get to the provisions on organization and the authorities of the divisions. In tandem with that, the NCAA National Office has pulled off another coup here by eliminating any association-wide regulatory responsibilities, but retaining exclusive authority for bringing in the March Madness money for negotiating and executing contracts on behalf of the association, which means maximizing revenue from Division I men's basketball and then conducting national championships that are funded through this March Madness money. Those are the only two things that the NCAA will be doing going forward if this new constitution is adopted. They will be getting completely out of micromanaging how the divisions make changes. They will basically get out of the enforcement and infractions process and they will be relieved of any responsibility for trying to enforce all these lofty values that they virtue signal through their principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics in the existing Article 2 of the Constitution. And then the other thing I think it's important to note at the broad brush level is that through this new constitutional process and this proposed draft, the same people who created this mess are still in charge of the enterprise. This is just about giving the power players the autonomy, the true autonomy they've always wanted under the NCAA umbrella. And when we look at the impact of these changes on the Power Five, what we're going to see, I think, is an accelerated game of realignment musical chairs because Division One now and the Power Five can create their own division and decide who is going to be fit for membership because they're going to have to decide the membership criteria for that new division. And I think that also helps to explain the formation of this Division One Board of Directors Transformation Committee that is top-heavy with Power Five interests. And they're going to be strategizing and looking at their chess boards to figure out who is going to be in and who's going to be out. And you might really start to see the concentration of the highest value football products into this new division. So that's going to get real interesting. And I think that the way that this has played out, again, I think suggests that the Power Five are flexing their muscles behind the scenes, the Power Five football interests, as they've done for the last 50 years to get their way, to isolate their interests and to have control of NCAA governance. And so we'll talk more about that when we get to the membership requirements and the organization structure. And those are, are two components of the new constitution. They're also in the old constitution, but this is going to be a power five show within these division one moves that are going to occur here. Let me just go now to Gates's memo 
And it says, he's writing this in his capacity as the committee chair for this constitution committee. And it says, draft of the new NCAA constitution. And I'll just read it. It's very short and it's important because this, I think, gives some insight into what this is all about and the way that this is structured. You really see that there hasn't been as much change as Gates suggests. And the other thing to remember is that this is a very short time frame. This Constitution Committee was formed in the beginning of August, and here we are in really early November, and we have this transformative overhaul of the NCAA Constitution. I believe, as with most things behind the scenes at the NCAA, this change really just reflects a reality that has always existed, and now the NCAA doesn't have any choice because they've been forced through external regulatory threats to deal with some of these issues that should have been dealt with decades ago. And I think that they had a pretty good idea of how they would restructure the NCAA if ever forced to do that. So I don't think a lot of these ideas are new. I think they've been part of the discussion behind the scenes and it all revolves again around the power five getting what they need to make as much money as they can in their big football products while staying under the NCAA umbrella and getting the benefits of NCAA membership. But Gates says, for the last three months, the Constitution Committee has worked to restructure the governance of college sports for the benefit of student athletes for years to come. And that's just perfect because he couches these changes as driven by student athlete interests. And we're doing this for the benefit of student athletes. This has nothing to do with the student athletes. This is a power struggle for control of the power five football interests and this tension that's existed for decades that I've talked so much about, both in the pay-for-play episodes and then in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes after the oral argument in Austin on March 31st of 2021. And one of the things I'm going to address, I may do a standalone uh, episode on this, is the way that the NCAA has hidden behind student-athlete interests and the student-athlete committees, the student-athlete advisory committees to put a face on this that's really disingenuous. This has very little to do with athletes' rights or athletes' interests. This is about structural change that really transfers the power that has always existed in the Power Five explicitly to the Power Five. So this is just saying out loud what has been true behind the scenes for decades now. And then he says, as has been the case throughout the process, NCAA member feedback on the draft reform constitution is vital to the association's success. Isn't that great? He says the uh, accompanying draft constitution includes a number of new concepts, even as it codifies certain existing priorities and principles in the NCAA constitution for the first time. So we're going to look at what he defines as these new concepts. And he says the draft recognizes that the NCAA encompasses public and private institutions and conferences of wildly varying mission size, resources, and opportunities, and that governance must reflect these differences through the delegation of authorities and responsibilities to the divisions, conferences, and member institutions. Well, that's always existed. That's been an issue in this unwieldy big tent NCAA approach to governance that has been the subject of criticism from external regulatory voices and advocacy groups really since the 1970s. So why now? I talked about that in the last episode. 
And then he says, among the new concepts are the following. One constitution across all three divisions at about one-fourth the length of the current constitution. Then he says, number two, clearly stating the association's priorities. And when I go through this draft constitution, I think you'll be scratching your head and wondering what is uh, clearly stated in that document. And remember, the entire NCAA Division I manual and the constitution is incomprehensible. Condoleezza Rice described it that way when she was doing her work with the Commission on College Basketball. She was referring specifically to the name, image, and likeness provisions of Bylaw 12.5 on promotional activities. But the entire document is just a train wreck of internal inconsistency, incoherent provisions, and an overall lack of organization. And back when the Knight Commission was talking about presidential control in the early 1990s, it characterized the NCAA rules and governing principles as akin to the IRS code. And I'm not sure that we've solved that problem here. Then the third thing is providing the divisions the authority and autonomy to reorganize and restructure themselves. That is a material change here because it basically takes the association level decision-making and authorities off the table here and sends that down to the divisions. And then number four, streamlining decision-making authority on association-wide issues to a board of governors reduced from 21 members to nine. And then the last thing, for the first time, the board and each of the divisional leadership bodies will include student athletes as voting members. And that bullet point is an acknowledgement that uh, up to now, despite all this propaganda about how athletes' voices need to be heard and how athletes' voices are driving the decision-making, there hasn't been a single current athlete who has had a voting seat on any of the NCAA governing bodies. Not one. So again, that's just a smokescreen. Then he says, the new constitution defines the priorities and principles important to college sports as a part of higher education. The draft, and there's a colon, one, embraces name, image, and likeness benefits for student athletes while prohibiting pay for play. What does that tell you? It, it tells you that this name, image, and likeness issue was forced on the NCAA through external regulators, mainly state legislatures, and it has no choice. So this notion that it is embracing name, image, and likeness benefits is silly. And then it says, while prohibiting pay for play, and you're back to the same Orwellian absurdity that, yeah, we can have name, image, and likeness benefits, but only within principles that prohibit outright compensation. And pay for play there, what do they mean is no payments from the university. So that incorporates amateurism. It incorporates the collegiate model. It incorporates the student athlete, all those things that the business model has been built around, but none of those phrases are used in this new constitution. And I'm going to talk about how they disguise the principle of amateurism. That is principle 2.9 in article two of the NCAA constitution. It's been the bedrock of the entire NCAA value system and its compensation limits. And that does not appear in the new constitution, but there is something that does appear that accomplishes the same purpose. And I'm going to get to that as well. The NCAA has just crafted a new term, a new buzz phrase, a new disguise for their compensation limits. Okay. The next bullet point is reaffirms existing 
revenue allocations, and championship opportunities for each division and assures that each division has oversight of its own budget expenditures and revenue distribution to its members. Note here that the word reaffirms means that nothing new is happening here. We just want to make clear that all these downstream beneficiaries of March Madness money are going to be happy. So they reaffirm the existing revenue allocations, and that refers to making Divisions 2 and Divisions 3 happy. So everybody is going to get their money, and they want to reaffirm the championship opportunities. Again, that gets to the NCAA's relevance at the national level. So it's going to bring in the March Madness money. It's going to conduct championships, and then it's going to spread the March Madness money around. That's all it's going to do under this new constitution. That's its national purpose here. And I'll get to that in a second in more detail. Then the third bullet point explicitly affirms. Again, we're affirming. So this is nothing new. So we're explicitly affirming the importance of the student-athlete mental as well as physical health. And that issue, student-athlete mental and physical health, is a recurring theme here. And that's, I think, really the disguise they're pointing to here as athlete-friendly. And they talk about how the three athlete representatives on the committee really fought for that. But that's been, again, part of the discussion for years. And when you look at how that principle of student-athlete mental and physical health expresses itself in the Constitution, there's no enforcement mechanism. So again, the NCAA has been completely let off the hook for enforcing any of these principles, these lofty principles that it doesn't legislate in. And it, the NCAA just pushes that stuff down to the institutional level, which is where it properly resides. But don't hold your breath for any meaningful and enforceable provisions at, at any level, NCAA, divisional conference, or institutional relating to student-athlete mental and physical health. And then the fourth bullet point reaffirms that responsibility for institutional control rests with the president or chancellor. Reaffirms. Again, that's nothing new. In fact, the first provision of Article 2, the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics in the existing NCAA constitution, it is devoted to institutional control and places primary authority for the conduct and control of intercollegiate athletics on university presidents and chancellors. And then an entire article in the existing NCAA constitution is devoted to institutional control. It's Article 6. That has been pulled forward in a more truncated form, but the last article in the new constitution is devoted to institutional control. So you have the presidents and chancellors technically sitting in the captain's chairs, at least at the institutional level. But when we go back to these, the survey results, this constitution committee did a survey, and I talked about it in the last couple of episodes, and I'm going to go through that in some detail at some point. I'll probably do a standalone episode on that. But in that survey, there was a, a question specifically devoted to whether or not presidents and chancellors should be in control. And the presidents and chancellors, the, the few who bothered to answer the survey at the Division One level, because only 37% of Division One university presidents and chancellors actually responded to the survey. But among that small number of presidents who responded, I think 85% said, yeah, we want presidents and chancellors in charge. But when you went down the stakeholder list and had that same question posed to athletics directors and faculty athletics representatives and to other in-system stakeholders, that number plummeted. So that is not a widely held view. And I don't think that's where this is headed. And I think this is headed to conference commissioners and power five athletics directors really calling the shots here. And then as always, you have to have a bullet point 
on diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. So the last of these five bullet points is provides new emphasis on diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. Again, they have been virtue signaling those values aggressively and shamelessly in their propaganda campaigns. But it, it's not clear from this new constitution uh, what that new emphasis is. So among those five bullet points, really what you have are Recommitments or in embracing things that have been forced upon the NCAA are simply reaffirming existing features of the NCAA governance model. Again, n- n- nothing new there. And then uh, Gates co- closes out the memo by saying, the committee believes this proposed constitution will well serve the 1,200 member schools and conferences and more than 500,000 student athletes who compete in NCAA sports every year. We look forward to your feedback on the draft and to working with you and supporting student athletes today and in the future. So what I want to do now is just do a real quick tour structurally at the existing NCAA constitution and the articles that it contains, and then compare that with this new draft constitution. And then I want to focus on the purposes provision, the article one of the existing NCAA constitution, which is expressed in the preamble to the new constitution. And then I want to talk about article two that has all these vague principles that the NCAA doesn't have and never has had legislation to enforce except for the principle of amateurism and its compensation limits. That is expressed in the new constitution under article one titled principles. So when you look at just the table of contents of the existing NCAA constitution, it contains the following articles. Article one, name, purposes, and fundamental policy. What is this enterprise about? What are its fundamental purposes, its basic purpose, and, it, and its basic policy? Article two is titled Principles for Conduct of Intercollegiate Athletics. And that has all these principles of student-athlete well-being, gender equity, sportsmanship, non-discrimination, sound academic standards, and all all this stuff. And then Article 3 is the NCAA membership provision. And that's important because it sets forth the criteria for being a member of the NCAA at at the association-wide level. And then Article 4 is titled Organization. And I have talked about that a bit in in prior episodes, and we're going to really drill down on that when we get to how the authorities have been sent down to the divisions in this new constitution. But the organization provision has these revenue guarantees, and and it's an important component of the organizational structure of the NCAA, and that is that these downstream beneficiaries are guaranteed a cut of the March Madness money. And then it's in that Article 4 that has the definition and criteria for the Board of Governors and then the Division One Board of Directors. And so the governing authorities are set out there and the responsibilities of the governing authorities. And that's going to be important because the way that they handle that in the new constitution, they're a little more specific about the authorities of the association versus the divisions and conferences and schools. And then there's also a provision in the new constitution that addresses the duties and responsibilities and authorities of the NCAA 
still a president, and that does not exist in the current constitution, and that's important. And that's a tell, because when you look at what the NCAA president's responsible for, we're back to the two things, bringing in the March Madness money, maximizing revenue, exploiting the hell out of the Division One men's basketball athletes, and then conducting national championships, and then taking that March Madness money and sending it down to beneficiaries in Divisions two and three, And then Article 5 goes to the legislative authority and process. And that Article 5 is really how the sausage is made at the decision-making level and what issues require association-wide approval, what can be done at the divisional level. And again, we're only concerned here with Division One, so that's what we're going to kind of focus on. And the new constitution kind of folds that into some of the principles of organization. Then the final article of the existing NCAA constitution is titled Institutional Control. I just talked about that. And that is this fundamental principle that's the product of the presidential leadership movement and uh, reform movement of the early 1990s that the Knight Commission initiated. And in, in its seminal 1991 report, it suggested presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics as a firewall to increased commercialization and professionalization. And it's just been a, a miserable failure. But that principle was so important in the thinking coming out of that Knight Commission movement that it has its own constitutional provision. And when you look at how the institutional control provision is addressed in the new constitution, you can see that it's really just a parade wave to a failed principle, a failed concept. And I don't think that going forward, the presidents are going to have much of a meaningful role. So that's the old constitution. Now let's just take a quick tour of how the new constitution is structured. So we have a preamble and that corresponds to article one of the existing constitution on fundamental purpose. Then you have article one of the new constitution titled principles. And that is just a rehash and reorganization of the current article two, the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics. And there's a lot of cut and paste here. And then let's see, what is the next article? That is article two in the new constitution. It is titled organization. And that incorporates the existing article four and article three. That is really the meat and potatoes of this new constitution. And it separates out the authorities of the association, the divisions, the conferences, the schools, the NCAA president, and then the student athletes. And then we go to Article 3 of the new constitution. It is titled finance. There is no provision in the current constitution that's titled finance. But what this Article 3 does in the new constitution is it incorporates all of the revenue guarantees of the current Article 4, that these downstream beneficiaries are guaranteed March Madness money, although they don't talk about March Madness. None of these discussions involve an explicit acknowledgement that all of this revenue comes from Division I men's basketball players. But under Article 3 of this new constitution finance, you get the specific reference to the preservation of the Division II allocation at 4.37% of the March Madness money, and then Division Three at 3.18%. And they express it in terms of operating revenue sources, but there's only one that matters. And this is a very short provision because those guarantees are contained in a very small portion of the existing Article 4. Now, the new Article 4 
is titled Rules Compliance and Accountability. This goes to the enforcement and infractions process. And the existing NCAA Constitution doesn't really talk in any specificity about enforcement and infractions at the association-wide level. In Article 2, it talks about rules compliance and recruiting and, and all that stuff. But the existing NCAA Constitution and Division One manual deals with the infractions and enforcement process through Bylaw 19. And I've talked about that in detail in my discussion about the NC State case and the infractions and enforcement process. And then also with this new federal bill that came out on November 2nd, the NCAA Accountability Act, which would basically put the NCAA enforcement and infractions process into receivership at the federal level. But this new Article 4, Rules, Compliance, and Accountability, basically guts the national infractions and enforcement process. That's how I read it. And it is sent down to the divisions and there are some criteria for how the divisions are supposed to put together their infractions and enforcement policy. And they do it at the brush level. And it appears to incorporate some semblance of due process recommendations, but there really isn't anything very specific. And then the article five of this new constitution is titled amendments to the constitution. And that incorporates some of the old Article 5 provisions on, let's see, what was that? Legislative authority and process. And basically just says that in order to amend the NCAA Constitution, you need a two-thirds majority. And it's brief, and I don't think that does anything new. And then the new Article 6 is titled Institutional Control, and it conforms to the old Article 6, which was also titled Institutional Control. And it incorporates this notion of presidential leadership and control for the conduct and control of intercollegiate athletics and that the ultimate responsibility rests with the presidents and chancellors. So we'll see how that goes. All right. So that's the compare and contrast of what the old constitution looks like and what the new constitution looks like structurally. Now I want to focus on these first two substantive provisions and the article one and two in the old constitution corresponds to the preamble and the article one of the new constitution. So I want to start with the existing article one, which is titled name purposes and fundamental policy. And it only takes up about a half a page. It's short. And the preamble in the new constitution that corresponds to it is equally brief. But I want to just make a couple of observations and then read some important language that the new constitution lifts from the fundamental policy provision that really gives us a good insight into one of the underlying and unstated purposes of this whole constitutional makeover. And it's important to remember that a lot of the thinking from the old constitution is thinking that goes back to the early 20th century and these outdated notions of uh, intercollegiate athletics as a extracurricular activity and an avocation and principles of amateurism that really never were adhered to, even in the earliest iterations of American college sports. And in the purposes section, so you have the name, section one under this article one, is the name of the organization shall be the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And then section 1.2, it says the purposes of the association are, and there are like, I don't know, nine or 10 but the first purpose listed in the old NCAA Constitution says to initiate, 
stimulate and improve intercollegiate athletics programs for student athletes and to promote and develop educational leadership, physical fitness, athletics excellence, and athletics participation as a recreational pursuit. <laughs> you never hear references to that purpose. And that's number one on the list in the old constitution. And it is outdated. It's archaic. And this notion that athletes are participating as a recreational pursuit is just so ridiculous on its face that you can't even pretend that is a rational expression of the purpose of college sports in the 21st century. So that's where this original Article 1 comes from. That's the thinking behind it. And then we get down to the fundamental policy. And the first section under fundamental policy is titled Basic Purpose. And I just want to point out that this provision is one that has been used very recently. The Commission on College Basketball specifically cited this constitutional provision in trying to articulate the framework through which its recommendations flowed. And it was, I think, a bastardized conceptualization of the collegiate model. But let me just read this basic purpose, and then I'm going to read the corresponding language in the new NCAA Constitution, and it's been manipulated to serve the NCAA National Office's interests here. But so the basic purpose provision in the old Constitution says the competitive athletics programs of member institutions are designed to be a vital part of the educational system. A basic purpose of this association is to maintain intercollegiate athletics as an integral part of the education program and the athlete as an integral part of the student body. And by so doing, retain a clear line of demarcation between intercollegiate athletics and professional sports. So this clear line of demarcation that the NCAA has relied on for decades in defending its compensation limits. And they've trotted this language out in the Commission on College Basketball, a lot of the advocacy statements that it issues. And it's also used this thinking in federal antitrust litigation to try to beat back suits by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. So let's look at how that basic purpose is expressed in the new constitution. So the preamble to the new constitution says the basic purpose of the association is to support and promote healthy and safe intercollegiate athletics, including national championships as an integral part of the education program and the student athlete as an integral part of the student body. They just drop off that last clause in the old constitution that says, and by so doing, retain a clear line of demarcation between intercollegiate athletics and professional sports. They don't want to focus on the amateurism issue because that is not a convenient subject right now because of the Austin decision and because of increasing public support for some model for college sports that doesn't have these ridiculous amateurism-based compensation limits. But what the, what is most important about that re-expression of the basic purpose and fundamental policy of the NCAA is the insertion of national championships. And honestly, that's not a model of clarity here, but I think the intent here is to try to elevate 
national championships as essential to the role of the NCAA. And remember, if you're looking at this through the lens of the original constitution, national championships were just this ministerial thing that the NCAA did to really organize and facilitate the national championships. It wasn't a fundamental policy of the NCAA, but now when the NCAA is in a battle for relevance and it's looking for a justification for its very very existence. National championships are crucial, as is bringing in the March Madness money, holding on to it and continuing the gravy train through the NCAA national office and then buying off downstream beneficiaries of March Madness money to have them be okay with the national office status quo. And that is just a breathtaking manipulation and sidestep of the old value system that the NCAA was fighting like hell to maintain to the bitter end, to the bitter end when it was begging Congress in June of 2021 for all these federal protections and immunities that would have placed it on the iron throne of college sports regulation and then through the Austin decision and then through the nil debacle when it just completely collapsed on voluntary rules changes. So on the backside of that, and I talked about this in prior episodes, episodes. What is relevance for the NCAA? Well, as expressed in this new constitution, it is national championships and March Madness money. And those are explicitly protected here. And the, any other historic regulatory purpose the NCAA served is no longer on their plate. And in the opening montage, I played a clip and you may be wondering, where'd that come from? Well, that was Claire McCaskill and she was a United States Senator from the state of Missouri. And that clip came from a 2014 Senate hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee. I've talked about that as well in, in some of my other episodes when I was talking about in the pay for play series about the importance of the year 2014 and the heat that the NCAA was under. And when the Power Five really bullied their way into this autonomy classification because they wanted to be further separated and protected from the rest of the NCAA. And that thinking is alive and well, and it's driving a lot of what's happening with this new constitution. Because now under this divisional structure and, and sending that power down, the division one interest and the power five interest can simply create their own division, essentially, and not have to go through all the BS they went through in 2014 through the association and the membership and all that stuff. But at that hearing, McCaskill just came down on Emmert and she just said, look, what is your purpose? What do you do here? And knowing that, that Mark Emmert was sent there as the bag boy for the Power Five, and it wasn't explicitly on the table in that hearing, but that was really the purpose. And they were making the case for this autonomy legislation. And it was dishonest the way that Emmert did it because he didn't disclose his true intentions. But McCaskill is listening to all this stuff. And she just says, listening to you, I can't tell if you're in charge here or whether you're just a minion to the Power Five. And she just, she just nailed it. That was one of the most prescient quotes from all of this congressional testimony that I have reviewed and have used in this podcast and in my writing. I mean, she just nailed it. And then she said, if you're nothing more than an economic pass-through to get this March Madness money and then hold on to enough of it to keep your national office bureaucracy happy and then to send the rest to downstream beneficiaries, why should you even exist? Is that a sufficient purpose for your existence at the national level? And the obvious answer to that is, of course not. 
But that is precisely what this new constitution relegates the NCAA to as a national governing authority, to conducting national championships and bringing in as much March Madness money as they can and then doing whatever the hell they want to with it. And this goes to my point that this March Madness money and the big time NCAA men's basketball product has been nothing more than a bargaining chip between the Power Five and the NCAA. And the Power Five's getting everything that they want here. And the NCAA is getting everything it wants here without any meaningful responsibilities. And it is a, a charade. This is just a charade. And this new constitution may as well be titled the Power Five Autonomy and NCAA National Office. Income Security Act of 2021. All right, so now let's go to Article 2. And just to frame this discussion of Article 2, remember that it was all these fluffy principles that really got the NCAA into hot water because it virtue signals them. And in the Baylor case with gender equity, they have all these provisions about gender equity, but there isn't any enforcement mechanism because the NCAA doesn't have legislation that supports this gender equity value that's contained in the Constitution. So there's no way to bring the hammer down in cases like Baylor. And that was one of the, I think, motivating issues in the formation of this Constitution Committee because the NCAA was in an untenable position where it was leading everyone to believe that it was serious about these values expressed in, in Article 2 of the Constitution, and then increasing frustration that the NCAA didn't do anything about violations of those values and those principles. And I want to make clear that this new Constitution doesn't do anything to create any enforceable standards here. They rephrase almost all of these principles through really a cut-and-paste exercise, but there is no legislation that's required to give any enforcement entity, whether it's at the NCAA level or the divisional level, the conference level or the school level, to do anything about it. Of course, at the school level, the schools have to comply with Title IX. The NCAA has skirted responsibility for that because it doesn't offer federal assistance. And in that 1999 Supreme Court case, the Smith case, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the NCAA couldn't be held responsible for Title IX issues because it doesn't move federal money. So that status quo still exists and the NCAA has zero responsibility for that. And there's an explicit statement in this new constitution that basically says that the NCAA isn't going to be involved in any of that stuff anymore. It doesn't say it's not allowed to continue to virtue signal all those false values. And they will certainly do that. But it explicitly says that responsibility for all of that stuff uh, shifts downstream. So I just want to read through the existing Article 2 provisions, and then I want to look at how they have been re-expressed in the, the new Constitution. So we have uh, the principle for institutional control and responsibility. Then we have the principle of student-athlete well-being. And again, this is all the uh, old Constitution. And under the principle of athlete well-being, there are several sub-principles that Overall education experience, cultural diversity and gender equity, health and safety, student-athlete coach relationship, fairness, openness and honesty, student-athlete involvement, all, all this stuff. Then the third 
principle is the principle of gender equity, and that has subparts to compliance with federal state legislation, NCAA legislation, and gender bias. Principle 2.4, the principle of sportsmanship and ethical conduct. Then, let's see, principle 2.5, the principle of sound academic standards. And again, it was this principle that the plaintiffs in that McCant suit relied on in the UNC academic fraud case. And then some athletes sued uh, the NCAA and UNC saying that they were steered to these fraudulent courses and that it violated in part this principle and the federal district court said nope uh, the NCAA owes no duty to you and that was the NCAA's primary argument there that all these principles have no legal significance they're just hortatory statements urging the people that they regulate to do the right thing when it comes to sound academic standards but that's not a basis for imputing any kind of quasi-contractual or fiduciary liability to the NCAA and they won that suit the federal district court granted their motion to dismiss on the grounds that they owe these athletes absolutely nothing. Then uh, principle 2.6, the principle of non-discrimination. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? 2.7, the principle of diversity within governing structures. Principle 2.8, the principles of rule compliance. And then there's some subsections there. Principle 2.9, the daddy of all principles and the only principle in this entire article two that the NCAA has ever given a damn about. And that is the principle of amateurism. This is the bedrock of the NCAA's existence or was for 120 years. This principle of amateurism. And it was litigated to death. And after, I don't know, 15 years of antitrust litigation, in suits brought by athletes, the NCAA to this day can't offer an intelligent definition of amateurism. And this principle of amateurism is not a definition. It's this circular statement. And it talks about, let's say, student athletes shall be amateurs in an intercollegiate sport and their participation should be motivated primarily by education and the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived. Student participation in intercollegiate athletics is an avocation or a hobby. And student athletes should be protected from exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises. You don't see that in the new constitution. You do see something else though. And I'm going to talk about that. It's a whole new buzzword to cover for amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student athlete, and it's equally absurd. Then in the whole constitution, we have principle 2.11, the principle governing recruiting. Then you have principle 2.12, the principle governing eligibility, principle 2.13, the principle governing financial aid. And all those three principles actually are addressed in detail in the NCAA's operating bylaws that govern the recruiting process and govern what is pay and what's not pay. And that's uh, expressed through quote unquote, financial aid. There's nothing about that in the new constitution. Then you have the principle governing playing and practice seasons, the principle governing postseason competition, and the principle governing the, the economy of athletics program operation. None of that is contained in the new constitution. It is dealt with in the delegation down to the divisions because they have responsibility for that. So let's now look at this new constitution and, and how they talk about those principles. And it's under Article 1 principles, and they start with the primacy of the academic experience. And what I did as I was reading through this new constitution, I just made notes where the verbatim language from the old constitution was pulled in here. It was renamed. So this new constitution 
provision, the primacy of the academic experience corresponds to the old constitution provision 2.2.1 titled overall education experience. And then let's see, we go to the next principle in the new constitution is the collegiate student athlete model. And this is the substitute for the old principle 2.9, the principle of amateurism. And here's what it says. Student athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport, but may receive educational benefits and benefits from commercialization through the use of their name, image, and likeness in accordance with guidelines established by their NCAA division. So the principle of amateurism has been devolved down to the divisional level, but there is a prohibition on athletes being compensated. They don't use the word amateurism and they don't use the phrase, the collegiate model. And they do talk in terms of student athletes. So the student athlete buzz phrase that was invented by Walter Byers in the 1950s to cynically avoid responsibility for workers' compensation liability is included. So the concept of the student athlete is protected and it's protected in that sentence when it says the student athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport. So that means no pay for play. That means athletes can't be employees. And that means that the uh, athletes economic liberties are being suppressed by that principle. But then it says, but it may receive educational benefits. So you, you, when you read that, you think, wow, that's great. They can get education benefits. It's something they couldn't get before. But that provision is the direct product of the ruling in the Austin case, the unanimous Supreme Court ruling, because the injunction that was at issue in that case just cut the NCAA out of the educational benefits business and said that there were these limited benefits that institutions could provide, but they put the conferences in charge, not the NCAA. So this does nothing more, this provision, but may receive educational benefits, does nothing more than state the obvious that the NCAA got its ass kicked in Austin, that this limited injunction requires the provision, that doesn't require, it allows, it's purely permissive. It permits the conferences to provide these education benefits and basically puts the NCAA on the bench here. And remember, <laughs> while this is expressed as some great thing in the collegiate student-athlete model, <laughs> I just love that. This is as cynical as the student-athlete and the collegiate model, or now the Knight Commission's using the educational model. What the hell is that? What the hell is any of that? It's nothing. It's just vacuous BS. But remember, the NCAA spent, I don't know, what, $300 million? in the Austin case to avoid paying those education benefits. And the Power Five were lockstep with them in that litigation. And it took uh, seven years of litigation and a unanimous Supreme Court to force the possibility of offering these benefits on the NCAA and the Power Five. And then this benefit from commercialization to the use of their name, image, and likeness, again, is just so dishonest because it suggests that is some great benefit that is an exception to this pay for play. And this is modernizing college sports and this is pro student athlete. But that is the result of state legislatures forcing the NCAA's hand and through federal antitrust litigation, forcing 
the NCAA's hand and the NCAA's mismanagement of that very issue and Mark Emmert's failure of leadership resulted in the NCAA waving the white flag at the very last minute, the day before the state nil laws were going into effect on July 1st. This was a product of a monumental NCAA failure, yet it's presented here as this wonderful thing that the NCAA is embracing, as Gates said in his cover memo. So that's your new principle of amateurism right there. Then we have, let's see, integrity and sportsmanship. There's a section for that in this new constitution, and that is nothing more than a rephrase of the old principle 2.4, which is the principle of sportsmanship and ethical conduct. And then, let's see, you have also an incorporation of provision 2.2.5 from the old constitution and that relates to student-athlete well-being. And then, let's see, the next heading is institutional control. And again, that was in the old Constitution as Article 2.1. Very similar language. And then there's a provision titled Compliance in the new Constitution. And that is nothing more than a restatement of the old constitutional provision 2.8.1 under the principle of rules compliance and the responsibility of institutions. Then in the new constitution, you have diversity and inclusion. And that is a knockoff from the old constitution's principle 2.7, the principle of diversity within governance structures. And then you have gender equity in the new constitution, which again is for from the old constitution and the principle 2.3, the principle of gender equity. And then they put in the last section in the new constitution is titled recruiting standards. And that is nothing more than a restatement of the old constitutional provision 2.11. So you have some sleight of hand here. You have basically the same stuff. And with the most important provisions that relate to amateurism, principle 2.9 in the old constitution, the principle of amateurism, you have that expressed in this ridiculous new phrase called the collegiate student athlete model. We'll see if that sticks. I'm not counting on that. So basically what you have here in, in terms of the fundamental purposes of the NCAA and its relationship to all the stakeholders, and then in its governing value system, the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics, you don't have much of a change here with one or two important exceptions. One, you have now elevated national championships to a fundamental purpose of the association, which is part of the National Office Income Security Protection Act and the Bureaucratic Preservation Act. And then you have the elimination of the principle of amateurism and having it disguised in this new collegiate student-athlete model. That's it. And then on the enforceability of these provisions, all these values and principles, I want to jump a little bit ahead to the new constitution and its organization section. But there's a provision that says, in talking about the association's responsibilities, it says, let's see, the association shall defer to other regulating bodies, the investigation of and sanctions against school and school representatives conduct that violate other regulating body or legal standards. For example, they put in paren, Title IX violations that may also violate NCAA gender equity principles or academic accreditation standards that may violate NCAA 
academic principles. After final determination by a regulatory body or court of school and school representative misconduct, the NCAA Board of Governors or Division Board of Directors or President's Council may issue a public censure <laughs> or take disciplinary action. That paren there is basically saying, that's a reference to this Baylor case and then the academic accreditation to the UNC case. And in both instances, as I've mentioned before, the NCAA's propaganda principles in Article 2 weren't enforced through legislation that, because there was no legislation on Title IX or academic accreditation standards. So basically what this is saying is that we're not responsible for any of this stuff. We're going to defer to the actual external regulatory authorities that have uh, responsibility for enforcing issues regarding Title IX or academic uh, accreditation, and we're just out of the business. So that's what you have. You have these fluffy principles. They're, they're reincorporated. The NCAA is going to continue to splash them in their propaganda on their website and their public statements and in their congressional testimony, but they have absolutely no meaningful value. And they had none in the old constitution and they have none under the new constitution. Okay, so that's about it for discussion of the fundamental purposes and the, the value systems of the NCAA under this new constitution. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about the organization and the legislation and all this devolution down from the association to the divisions. And I'll just go through provision by provision and, and talk about how the new constitution approaches that. And that is consequential because, again, in those authorities, the Power Five has a pathway to do whatever the heck it wants to do and to reshape the current Power Five if it chooses to. And, and that's really, I think, where the discussions are occurring right now. And that ties in to this realignment issue and who's going to have a seat at the table when the music stops playing and the music is ramping up right now. So with that, I'll, I'll close this episode out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. <laughs>